Acts 21, Part 1, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Peter on. It's been a while since I've been up here, it took about four weeks off, and I'm really excited to kind of share with you uh, this word that God has sort of placed upon my heart. I've been kind of reading this text probably for about three weeks, almost every day, and uh, read every commentary possibly on it but it just didn't sit well with me. And I just said, God, like, what do you want me to communicate with the church through this passage? And I uh, felt like there were some really poignant things that he kind of shared with me. But before I even do that, uh, some of you know a little bit about my story. Uh, I lived in Queens. I lived in Elmhurst, Queens, uh, when I immigrated here from Korea at the ripe old age of three months. And when I was living in Queens, Elmhurst, Queens, I didn't know that being Korean was a bad thing. I just thought it was fine, you know, like we just kind of, Queens was just kind of an area where we embraced each other's ethnicity, our background, and it was just a kind of a cool place to grow up. But third grade, my parents moved, took the whole family over across the bridge, two bridges, to Palisades Park, New Jersey in the early 80s, which was predominantly an entirely uh, blue-collar Italian neighborhood, Irish people as well, but uh, there were hardly any Asians there. It was just my family and another family that were Asians. And when I got to that place at third grade, grade, I I realized that being Korean was going to be very difficult for me. Kids started making fun of me, and it it continued to progress till I I was about in high school. And I realized that if I don't figure out a way to sort of assimilate into this culture, that I'm going to be made fun of every single day, and I didn't want that to happen. And what began to happen was that growing up, shame was sort of already a big part of my life, but it just became even bigger in school. And as a result of it, what that did was that it created me to create a false identity of who I am. And what I realized was I said, if I don't try to become Italian, my, these kids will not embrace me for who I am. And so I tried to be as much Italian as I can. I want to show you a couple of my Italian pictures back in high school and middle school. And I want you to know, do I look Italian there? Probably not, but notice the cuff jeans. That's big back in the 80s, right? That's really big. It's kind of getting big now, I think, coming back. Share the next one. This is my perfect Italian picture. Look at those moccasins I had on, right? Barefoot, Don Johnson, Miami Vice, that kind of look. That was me. Now, listen, back then, listen, I believed I was Italian. (laughs) Do I look Italian? No. Poor attempt. Failure. Epic fail, right? But I thought I did. You know why? Because they started to accept me. I started to dress like them, I started to talk like them, I started to play sports that they played in, and it was important for me to do that. I wrestled, like, I hated wrestling. But I wrestled because it was the most popular sport in my school, and I did whatever I could to sort of be assimilated. And what happened was, is that even though I don't look anything Italian, because they accepted me, I thought I fooled them. And I thought perhaps maybe they saw me as a fellow Italian. I ended up denying a big part of how God made me. And it really impacted me, even well into my marriage, that I had to sort of do a retracing of the roots of of why I still carry so much shame in being Korean. And a lot of that came from my days of growing up. I think a lot of us, when we go through hardships, when we encounter shame in some capacity, what we typically do is that we tend to sort of create a false identity of ourselves. We create an image that's really not ourselves, but we do that out out of a sense of preservation. We do it to survive, right? Because we've been so hurt, or maybe we're living such steep in shame that what we do is out of sense of preservation in order to survive in this world, we create sort of a false image of ourselves so that we present that to the person. Because if they don't reject, if they reject that image, at least it's not really us. It's the image that we presented. 
And what we do over time is that as we continue to do that, it just, there's a piece of us that ends up dying as a result of it. I don't think we just do that naturally with ourselves, but I do think a lot of us in this room, including myself, we do that with God as well. That perhaps as we go through the ebbs and flow of our Christian life, over the years, we sort of create God in our own image. Have you ever done that before? You and I all know that when you read Genesis, we know that God created us in his image. We know that. We are created in the very image of God, but for a lot of us, we decided to return the favor. And we've created a God in our very own image that is not congruent to what you and I read in the Bible. We really don't. Now, what am I talking about here? You know this. You know the American God that we've sort of created in our own image, the God of comfort, the God who's supposed to bless you when you get a job, right? Or God who's supposed to get you a job when you get it. He's supposed to bless you and you're supposed to rise up that corporate ladder, make a lot of money and, 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 and feel good and, and be able to, you know, work in that place and people will look at you with a lot of honor and respect. That kind of God. Do you know that kind of God? You know the God that's supposed to bless you and your family, right, with with, with money and with certain things and with a home and certain possessions and certain circumstances that you feel good about yourself. A God that's going to bless you with good children that listen to you, listen to everything you tell them to do. Like a God like that, you know what I'm talking about. A God who's supposed to bless you with a child if you don't have any child, that you pray and God's supposed to bless you bountifully like other people. And if you're single here today, a God that's supposed to allow you to connect with the future man or woman that you would call your husband or your wife, that's the kind of God that you and I truly believe in. Not necessarily anything deeply wrong with it, but if that's your image of God, a God that's supposed to bless you and lead you to a life of comfort, my friends, you have created God in your own image. That's not God. Today, I hope and I pray that the real God would stand up in your lives. That you will say, would the real God please stand up? And that as he stands up, that you would see him for all his wonder and his splendor and his beauty. But it's not gonna happen, honestly, it's not gonna happen if you don't crucify the God you created in your own image. You gotta crucify it today. The only way we're gonna be able to do that is if we're able to encounter the very real God And what I want to do as we look at Acts chapter 21, thank God for chapter 21, because as we look at the first 16 verses, Paul's going to help you and I to encounter the real God so we can crucify the very God that we created in our own image. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 21, and we'll look at the first 16 verses, Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to coast. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed, to the, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre and where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, some of your translations say four virgins. Verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took... 
Paul's belt, tied his hands, his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us through, accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, I pray that you would allow us to at least come to the realization that we have created you in our own image in some ways. I pray that you allow us to lay that at the altar today and that we can embrace you for who you are. God, I'm, I pray that you would forgive us because in many ways we've really shrunk you in our lives and you're this tiny little God who really doesn't do much in our lives. I pray today that you would help us through the Apostle Paul to embrace the enormity of who you are your splendor, your grace, your mercy. So God, that we could lay down this puny little God that we created in our own image. And so God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray God it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right, so how do we encounter this real God so that we can lay to rest this God that you and I created in our own image? Are you ready for this? Here's the first one. In order for you and I to encounter the real God, we're going to have to experience him through the marginalized. I wish there was another way. If you really want to encounter the real God, you have to experience him through the marginalized. Does that make sense? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, all right? This is the same Philip that was a part of the seven deacons that were chosen. Stephen was the other one that was chosen. This was the same Philip who ministered to the Ethiopian. Remember, he shared the gospel message with him, and the Ethiopian gave his life to God, and then he baptized them. This is the same Philip. Philip was a really godly man. And he was in this home, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, these four women were marginalized, because women back in the first century were all marginalized. In fact, on the social totem pole, they were on the same level as a dog. Can you imagine that? That they were at the same level as a dog? And so what happened was that women were never able to enter into the temple. They were not able to enter into the places where the men were to learn of the word of God. The Torah was completely exempt from them, so only men could learn of it. Women had no place, certainly no place in leadership, no place where a woman had the audacity to teach a man the ways of God. And what we find here is that not only were these young women, they were really young. Now, if they were unmarried, probably their age was anywhere between 12 to 14 years old. So not only, they weren't even women, they were girls. So they were children, and children were even more oppressed than women in and of itself. And that's a, a, a girl, not a, not a boy, right? At least a boy had a sense of promise for them and a place in their society. So get this, this was a 12 to 14-year-old little girl, four of them who prophesizes unto Paul. Could you imagine how hard that was for Paul? Because Paul was a Pharisee. 
He was a Pharisee back in the day. He was taught on the Gamaliel. I mean, the dude lived in a world where women were not allowed to do this. Could you just imagine, because some of his other friends, as we read on later on and before, they discourage and they get a word from God, a prophetic word, and what do they say to him? Don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be bad news for you. We don't know what the ladies, what these young girls said to him, but they prophesied unto him, and I'm sure he deeply ministered unto Paul, but Paul encountered the real God through these four young ladies. If you and I ever want to encounter the real God, if you ever want to encounter him, you have to find him through the marginalized. As you stare into the eyes of humility, sometimes you will have an eerie awareness that Jesus is staring right back at you. Women had a prominent role in the book of Acts. You see that with Priscilla. Remember Priscilla was the better teacher than her husband Aquila? And she taught Apollos, an Old Testament scholar, the theology of the Holy Spirit. Women played a big role. In fact, you know, a lot of scholars who study first century church, they say that if it wasn't for women, the church would not have been in success as we see it even today. Women played a prominent role. Lydia also played a prominent role. Very wealthy businesswoman who hosted Paul and his companions to continue to proliferate the ministry of God. Women played a big role. Now we see these four young girls who were prophets and we find that these prophetess were doing the very work of God. My friends, if you want to encounter God, if you want to encounter the real God, you have to be willing to experience him through the marginalized. How are we doing in that area? How are you doing in your spiritual growth? Do you have a plan in your spiritual growth to surround yourself and to connect with some marginalized people so that you can encounter Jesus through? You see, Jesus says something very powerful in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. Thank you, David Hosang. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. This is what Jesus says to, this is what's going to happen on the day of judgment. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. I've shared this with you many of times. Here's what it says. Truly, I tell you, this is Jesus. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus is telling his disciples that whenever you serve the least, the last, and the lost, you did it unto me, meaning he is there. If you want to experience God in a real way, in a fresh and a deep way, you cannot compartmentalize and start to say, well, I'm going to experience the real God through the people that you decide to handpick. If God were to give you that option, you would probably pick people that you think you would experience God through. If I were to ask you, who would you pick? Many of you would pick a pastor, maybe me, maybe somebody on our staff, right? Many of you would pick maybe a specific leader, maybe a motivational speaker. You'd pick people like Mother Teresa. I get it. But Jesus will not give you the option to pick. He's saying that if you want to experience him, you got to go to the marginalized. You have to go to the least, the last, and the lost. Therefore, when you think about your own spiritual growth and how you're going to grow in Jesus Christ, is there a component where you're actually saying, I'm experiencing Jesus through the marginalized? Because if you want to see the real God stand up in your life, it's the only way in how you can engage with him in. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy, but it's the only way. You know, um, I got to just stop and pause for a moment because for some of you, you are the marginalized. And you are, the, you are a future leader for this church. But you won't allow it to happen because you use it as an excuse to exempt yourself from doing anything for God. It's the greatest lie of the devil. Perhaps maybe the reason why God is calling you to do certain things is because of your marginalization. 
is because of your weaknesses, your pain and your brokenness and your history that you've gone through in your life. Perhaps that's the reason why. The next future generation of leaders in our church and in the church tomorrow are always going to be the least, the last, and the lost. That's why Jesus chose the 12. These were the least, the last, and the lost. There weren't people who had it all together. They were all rejected in rabbi school. All 12 of those guys? They were, any Jewish kids, parents dream, like parents, you know you have dreams for your kids? Doctor, lawyer, other things, right? Well, for a Jewish family, every parent's dream was that their kid would be chosen by a rabbi so they can be a disciple. That was their dream. And when it didn't happen, they would figure out what else to do with their lives. All 12 were rejected, the 12 apostles that were chosen by Jesus Christ. You see, the ones who've been marginalized, the ones who are on the fringe are the ones that God wants to bring to the center. And so if you've ever felt that, if you've ever felt like you've been marginalized, you've been, you feel like you've been, you're in a state of weakness right now, I want you to know that that's the reason why God's tapping you on the shoulder and he wants you to go and lead. Because what you see as an abnormality, God sees as a supernatural power if you embrace it today. Amen? So stop using your brokenness as an excuse. Come on. Come on now. Are you going to be like the world? Your brokenness, your junk, your issues, if you let God breathe life in it, will actually be the reasons why God gives you a platform for ministry. And so if you want to encounter the real God, you got to put yourself in a place where you connect with the marginalized because when you stare humility in, in the eye, you can't help but get more humbled. It will humble you always. Stare humility in the eye and I guarantee you, you will be more humbled as a result of it. My daughters came back from South Africa on Friday. We sat down together and, and you know, I was texting them while they were there. I said, how you doing? You enjoying it? Like, we love it. Awesome. The best. It's like, great. My kids went to South Africa five years ago. My, I took my family out there. Christina was 13 at the time. Uh, Kayla was, what was that, 12? Uh, no, not 13, uh, 11, 10. And then Christian was like eight. Right? They were just little kids, but they had such a positive experience they wanted to go back again. So I was really happy that they did. But when they did, I just said to them, I, said, I know you're having fun with your friends. I know it's great. But I said, God's there. Try to find him. Search for him. And so two days ago, we had dinner at the house because they came back on Friday. And I said, what was the most powerful moment for you? What was the moment where you felt the spirit moving your heart? And they both shared the same thing. They said it was when they went and visited these orphans. What Zamele does is that Zamele, uh, they, they start an orphan vulnerable care uh, program. And what, unfortunately, what we've done here in America is that we've created a greater orphanage crisis because sometimes we think, and we partner with certain organizations where they want to build orphanages for these orphans and institutionalize them. That's the worst thing that could happen because when they become adults, they kick them out and they don't have a family anymore. And it's the worst thing that we do. We create a deeper sense of poverty the American way. But what is Zamele, because it's an indigenous group, the women, the, the grandmas, they go and they literally adopt these kids and they, they connect with them and they make sure that they have food, they check in on them and they always know that they're a part of a family no matter what. And so they, they took the kids to go visit these orphans. And, um, and, and Christina and Kayla said that they visited these two boys. One was 15, one was 16. And they were heads of their household because their parents had passed away due to poverty-related issues. And they said they were so touched by that because some of them really, they cared for their three to four siblings. One had three siblings. One had, I think, four siblings. And they had to raise them, care for them, make sure they went to school, Make sure that they were protected. A 15-year, can you imagine our 15-year-old kid doing that? These kids were growing up at a different place and, and they both said that 
God just did something in their heart. And I said, do you know what that was? And they weren't able to really put their finger on it. I said, you know, you met Jesus there. Because those two boys that you met who are now heads of their house and they're doing the best they can, Jesus is always with the least, the last, and the lost, and the hurting. You met Jesus through them. You encountered the real God. That's why you felt that in your heart. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget that we can really encounter the face of Jesus through the least, the last, and the lost. And so I want to encourage you that if you're really serious about laying down the God that you created in your own image, if you want to crucify that today, you have to start asking yourself, how can I get around? How can I make regularly a part of my life where I can connect with the marginalized so that I can encounter Jesus in a real way? If we can do that, I guarantee you, you will grow and you will begin to experience God for who he truly is. So if you want to experience the real God, the first thing, you need to see him through the marginalized through the marginalized. Many ways in how you can connect with that, uh, being a part of this church and serving in certain ministries that we have. Second thing in order for you to encounter the real God is when you are intentional about living in deep relationships. You encounter the real God when you are intentional about living in deep relationships. Look at verse three. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. What you, want to, what you need to see here is that Paul had people in his life where he was deeply loved. He was so deeply loved. He had these deep relationships with these people. And it was so encouraging to see that. And we find that, is that he, as he was getting ready to depart and go to the next place, uh, families came with their kids and with their, with their spouse. And they went, they met Paul on the beach before he got on the boat. And that's kind of like common practice. If somebody that you love dearly is leaving you now, a lot of us, we go with them to the airport. We'd say goodbye. Some of us would probably pray with them. But when you pray with them, how many of you would get on your knees at Newark Airport and pray for them before they leave? These families loved them so much that they got on their knees and they prayed for him. Paul was deeply loved by people. Paul lived in deep relationships with Luke, Timothy, Barnabas, and Silas. Those were his companions that he traveled to from place to place. He had deep relationships with people. How do we have deep relationships with people? Because if you want to encounter the real God, the only way you're going to be able to do that is when you have deep relationships with others. Here it is. I think you probably know it. The way we have a deep relationship with someone is just doing one thing. You know what it is? Be honest. Just be honest. Learn to be honest with people in your lives. There's a couple of people in your life. When I talk about honesty, I'm talking about not living your life with any secrets. Because when we live our lives with secrets, we end up going into a place where it's not uh, healthy. I wish I had some deep relationships with some, of my, with some people when I was in the third grade and I moved to Pow Park. I wish I had some deep relationships with some people so I could be honest about how I felt and how these people made me feel when they made fun of me. Because I think if I did, some of them would probably say, Peter, stand up, don't worry. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. I think it would have really helped me. But I lived so many years trying to be Italian when I know I wasn't, but I thought I, but I, thought I was because I fooled them. I lived sort of this place where there was so much shame in being Korean that it tried to, I tried to transform myself to be somebody who God didn't create me to be. 
And if I only had those deep relationships, it would have been a very different reality. I wish I had some people that I could have shared my deep secrets with. See, what I want to encourage you to do is that if you want to have deep relationships with people, you can only really only have a handful, two or three people, I think, in your life. And I want you to get together with those people. And I want uh, this week or, or this month, I'll make a goal that you would sit down and you would share, do a life confession with them. I want you to do a life confession. Confess everything, the secrets that you've kept from every human th- being on this planet. A life confession. You see, if you live your life with secrets, it's a, a very famous uh, counselor and also a speaker. His name is John Bradshaw. Can we put up that quote? This is what he wrote. Put up that quote. Yeah. You are only as sick as the secrets that you keep. You are only as sick as the secrets that you keep. If you and I keep secrets, we create a sickness in our soul where we are not able to embrace the real God for who he is. And I know there's a lot of your secrets are rooted in deep shame. And you're wondering what happens if somebody were to find out. But when you're doing that, you're playing into the devil's schemes. And he wants you to live your life in secret so that your soul can continue to be diseased. Metro, there is no healing when there's pretending. And so many of you, you know you don't even know that your life pretty much predominantly functions with shame. It does. And you don't even know this. And so much of it is because you're, willing, you're unwilling to live your life where you can be completely known in the face of somebody else. How are you ever gonna know that God loves you and that he's poured out his grace upon you when you still live with secrets? That's why Jesus says, when two or more are gathered, I'm there. And we have to put ourselves in a position where we can connect with someone and share and do a life confession with someone where we share not just our present sins, but all of our past and our darkness, the things that oftentimes we carry a lot of shame in. And when we do that, we allow the light of God to really penetrate and impact our lives and your life. And so would you think about encountering the real God If you want to do that, I want to encourage you to make sure you do a life confession. Maybe this week, maybe it could be somebody from our staff. Maybe it could just be a friend that you already have a real close relationship with. And say, you know what? Can we have a life confession time? Like, meaning, can you share it too? I'll share it. I'll start. But then maybe you can go after that and share every secret that you're carrying today. I guarantee you, you do that, you will encounter the real God. You will see the God for who he truly is. But when you live your life with secrets, you end up falling into the greatest disease of all humanity. And you know what that is? Loneliness. The greatest human disease today that many people suffer from is loneliness. And men and women experience it just alike. But 90% of men today are struggling with this disease of loneliness that is destroying their own hearts and their souls. It's not easy, I know it's hard but encountering the real God is worth it. And if you can encounter this God when you expose your secrets to someone, there is healing that is there for you in your life. Life confessions warrants a deep relationship. If you have that, you will encounter the real God. If not, then you'll continue to create God in your own image. He's not gonna do much for you. Third and last thing, you encounter the real God when we welcome suffering for Jesus. When you welcome suffering for Jesus. If you ever want to encounter the real God, you need to be okay with suffering for Jesus. Look at verse four. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
After we had been, jump over to verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, have you ever done that? The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people, we meaning Luke and Paul's deep friends, the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but to also die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Please know what the Holy Spirit did reveal to both these prophets in those two different scenarios here, revealed to them that Paul was going to suffer. And so because of that, they took that information, they downloaded it, and they said, you know what, Paul? You can't go to Jerusalem because you're going to suffer. They forbade him to do that. And not only was it these prophets, but then all of a sudden Paul's companions sort of got in it as well because they don't want Paul to suffer. They don't want Paul to die. They don't want Paul to be in prison. And so they told him not to. You and I would do the same thing. That if you love somebody and you deeply care for them and all of a sudden the spirit shows you that something bad is going to happen to them, you would naturally... Tell them not to do it. And so what these prophets were struggling with is simply they struggled with understanding a theology that God will actually lead us to suffer. They didn't have that in their understanding of God. They believed that God doesn't, that God's just supposed to protect us. And so they thought that the Holy Spirit was giving them a warning sign. Tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Tell him not to go. The Holy Spirit showed them what's going to happen. But because they didn't have a theology of suffering, they said, Paul, don't do it. They created God in their own image, Metro. And that's what was happening. And I think for a lot of us, we do the same thing. That because we don't have a theology of suffering and you believe that God is not going to lead you to suffer, that God is supposed to just protect you and make you comfortable and, and allow you not to suffer, guys, that's so antithetical to what we learn in the Bible, especially to what we see here in the church of Acts. God will call you and I to suffer for him. That he will encourage you. Now listen, I, I do have to say this is that for some of us, I do meet some Christians where you are seeking to suffer for God, that you want to suffer, that you're looking to suffer for God. I honestly think there's something wrong with you if, if you want that. None of you should want to suffer. Paul didn't want to suffer. But you know, there's some Christians you meet and, and they see, they sort of get entrenched into this Hollywood version of what it means to be a Christian. And they want to be known by people by their suffering. And so they want to suffer all the time for Jesus Christ. There's something off about you if you want to suffer like that all the time. I think there's a lot more narcissism than you really are able to accept about your life, all right? So I think the majority of us don't struggle with that, but if you do, you got to get yourself checked out, all right? You really do got to get yourself checked out, all right? No offense, but you really do. Uh, the, the, but I think a lot of us, we don't have a theology where we can say, you know what, God, you're going to leave me to suffer? that you're actually leading me to go through a hard time? And so a lot of us, we, would, we struggle to wrap our minds around that reality. And, uh, and you have to know that God does. That God does allow us and lead us to be open to suffering for him. You see, what happens now, we'll look at this next week, is that Paul goes to Jerusalem and he literally gets, gets beaten up and if, if the authorities didn't come, he would have died there. He gets put in handcuffs and he goes to prison and he spends two years in prison. Do you know what he does there while he's in prison for two years? He writes one of the most poetic, most eloquent, most powerful books in the Bible called Philippians. While he's in prison, 
And if you are to read Philippians from, from the first chapter to the last chapter, what you come to realize, if there's one word to sum up Philippians, you know what that word is? Joy. Joy. Paul's in prison for two years, suffering for Jesus Christ, and he writes one of the most poetic books in the, in the Bible, and he writes a book on joy. Why he's in prison? Get this for a moment. Why? Because he was able to experience the real God, that he was open to the sufferings that maybe God would call him to, and as a result of it, he was able to encounter this God in such a deep and powerful way. If Paul embraced the God that he created in his own image, you know what would have happened to him if he went to prison? He probably would have cursed God a couple times. He probably would have said, God, what are you doing? This is not the promise you had for me. He probably would have even doubted that God loved him. Hear me on this, Metro. If you've ever doubted that God loves you, you've created him in your own image. If you've ever doubted that God loves you, you have created him in your own image. You and I can never doubt that God loves us. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. If God didn't love you, trust me, he wouldn't have sent Jesus Christ. He didn't just send him for your sins. He sent him because he really loves you and he thinks the world of you. And whenever we begin to doubt his love for us, we begin to create God in our very own image. And I think there is a place for us to be honest and real with our pain and the soft suffering and the challenges that we go through. The Psalms teaches us that. And I'm sure Paul had those moments as well, but when, when we can bring those before the Lord and continue to embrace him for who he truly is, something beautiful will happen like Paul did where he wrote the book of joy while he was in prison. And I hope that you and I can learn to do the same that as we're open to suffering for God, that you and I will be able to encounter the real God. What happened to him in prison? What happened? What does Paul see about suffering that sometimes you and I do not see? Look at Romans chapter five, verses three to five. He writes this about his theology of suffering. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I love this. Paul embraces suffering. Why? Because it produces character and the character produces hope. And how do we live? How do we live our lives where we're delivered from shame? Living in hope. That's it. Shame is such a primary emotion that's so dysfunctional and so awful that oftentimes we don't know how to live outside of it. And part of it is when we suffer, God will build perseverance and character and then a hope and hope will allow us to not live in shame. I don't think we can really experience God's love for us unless we're willing to suffer for him. Now listen, I don't think any of us in this room, I don't think we're gonna suffer for him in a way where we're gonna be put in prison for our faith, where we're gonna be beaten for our faith. I don't think that's gonna happen. We live in America and we live in a country that's not, that's, that's not gonna happen. If you wanna experience that, you gotta move someplace else where they're very hostile to the gospel message. But uh, how, how do we open ourselves up? How, do we, how are we open to maybe suffering for God? How are we able, how are we able to do that? Well, for, I think part of it is maybe taking a stand that's not popular in culture today. That could be a way where you open yourself up to suffering. That you take a stand that is so deeply rooted in God and, and it's biblical and it may not be very popular in culture today. That is a way in how we can maybe suffer for him, right? Suffering could be you praying every day a prayer of blessing for your greatest enemy in your life. Maybe an ex who broke up with you. 
Maybe somebody who hurts you physically, emotionally, sexually. But maybe one of the ways in how you suffer today for God is you pray a blessing upon them, their family, their children, their lives. You pray a blessing upon them. And maybe God will show you something as you're able to do that. You see, suffering is when you don't want to do something, but you do it anyway because God does want you to do it. That's suffering. It doesn't mean you have to die for him in that way, but most of all, it's about you dying to yourself. I think that's suffering. If you pray for your enemy's blessing every day for the next month, I encourage you to do that. I think God will do something transformative in your heart when you do. Suffering could be you owning up to something that you've done wrong, finally owning up to something and saying, you know what, uh, I'm sorry. I, I know it was, you know, when I did that, I was, I was very mad and angry, but sometimes we use our dysfunction as an excuse to support our sin. <laughs> And you know, when, when we've normalized our dysfunction, at the end of the day, it's still dysfunction. It still is. Maybe it's taking ownership of that and t- going up to someone saying, I'm really sorry. I'm gonna try to do better, all right? Maybe God would encourage some of you to quit your jobs because he loves you so much and he cannot stand the fact of how miserable you are at work. That you're so miserable when you go into work every day. Some of you just have to shut down emotionally. And the only reason why you're there is because it pays pretty well and it helps you to support, pay bills, and support a lifestyle that you've sort of created for yourself. But deep down inside, you're like dying. Maybe a way to suffer is that God would encourage you to quit that job and maybe do something completely different that would lead to life and that would literally make your soul come alive again. Some of you don't even know what that's like. But maybe that's what it would be. Maybe God would show you to uh, suffer, encourage you to suffer by... Uh, Showing mercy and grace to a spouse who doesn't deserve it. Your spouse deserves your wrath. Your spouse deserves your justice. But maybe God would encourage you to, rather than doing that, that you would do something that he does for you all the time. And that show you grace and mercy all the time. Maybe that's how you suffer for him today. Right? Another way in how you can suffer is today we, we're starting our 21 days of fasting and praying. They just say, you know what, God, I'm going to give up food for at least 24 hours because I want to get closer to you and I want to experience the real God in my life. I'm so encouraged because today the prayer sheets went out to all that was fasting today and I saw that 12 people are fasting today. 12 people from my church are praying and fasting that God would bring our church closer and deeper to him. It's just amazing. You know how many people are fasting and praying for us tomorrow? 24. I just was so thankful. Maybe you could sign up today. Sign up and say, you know what, I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to pray and fast so that the real God could stand up not only in my own life, but in the life of this church. That you would be willing to pray and fast for us. Maybe that's a way in how we do it, right? One of the ways, I think, in how we can all truly try to suffer to the best we can for God is allow ourselves to open up a wound that we have closed off. A wound that maybe we've are too afraid to revisit. We've had some people in our church leave our church because we tried to encourage them to revisit those wounds. And sometimes these are very successful people and they look at me right in the eye and they said, I can't do that. And they said, you know, I think it's time for me to leave this church. And I get it because as a kid, you didn't have the proper faculties to deal with some of those wounds. And so the only way you dealt with it was shoving it real deep inside of you and you just moved on. But there's something real off about us when we do that. And maybe we're so afraid of what's going to happen to us if we revisit that wound. But I want to encourage you to maybe this week or this month or even today, open up that wound and let God speak to you. You see, God doesn't call you to suffer because he's about being punitive with you. Sometimes we think that God wants us to suffer because he's angry with us. 
God isn't leading Paul to suffer because he's sinful. No. God wants you and I to be open to suffering so that you can understand the depth of his love for you. Amen? Amen. That's why he wants you and I to suffer. It's not to hurt you in a way like that, but he wants you to suffer and be open to it because so much our own brokenness and our pain are the reasons why we're suffering today without any purpose. And so will you open up a wound in your own life so that God could come and speak to you? I had that happen to me last week. So for those who may not know, I started grad school again. I started a doctorate program last week. Yeah, thank you. In a few years, you're gonna have to call me Dr. Peter On. But if you really know me, you guys know I'm not an academic. I, I have not about, I never wanted a doctorate degree. In fact, people would ask, like, are you ever going to go back to school and get a doctorate degree? I said, no way. I, I don't want to go to school. Don't desire it at all for my life. But about nine months ago, the dean of Alliance Theological Seminary, Dr. Ron Wahlberg, came to my office to talk to me. And we, I, I, try, I got him to come because I want to talk to him about partnering with our church, about giving you graduate credits if you guys graduate from the MIT program here. Metro Institute of Transformers that David Hosang oversees, he's going to give us nine credits if you finish that course, nine graduate credits. That means you can use those credits to get a master's degree, right? So I was there to negotiate that with him. And while, you know, he was there, he just sort of in passing talked about the doctorate program at Alliance. And I said, what's the focus on? And he said, global leadership. I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. I said, what's, what's that about? And he started to share with me the program and what the program was all about. I remember when you read uh, in the beginning of Luke when Elizabeth was pregnant with John and when Mary came in with Jesus in her belly and when she walked into the door, John just kind of leaped out of, of Elizabeth and she felt like this push in her belly and it was like really strong. But when he started sharing with me about the program, I literally felt that from the depth of my belly, like something was jumping out and it was the spirit of God saying, you gotta take this. You gotta sign up for this course. You gotta sign up for this program. And so I did. I signed up for this program reluctantly. And last week I was in class for the entire week. It was an intensive, a nine hour day kind of a thing for eight straight days. And uh, Dr. Rob Reamer, uh, the author of Soul Care, you would only do yourself a tremendous blessing if you picked up that book and started reading it. He taught that class and it changed my life. I, I will never, I honestly will never be the same again. But one of the times, uh, on a Wednesday of, not, of last week, he, uh, not this past week, but the week before, he taught a class on wounds. And, he's, and he talked about how deep, uh, like our souls will never heal if we carry wounds. It's okay when it heals and it scars, but if they're still wounded, it's going to really mess us up. And so after the class, he just kind of said, okay, well, close your eyes and uh, think of a wound, pick a wound. And I just said, well, I got a catalog of wounds. I don't know which wound I'm going to pick. I'm going to look through it. And I started going through mine. Which one do I pick? Which wound? Which wound? And he just said, just pick one. And so I just said, all right. So I just picked this one wound that I thought wasn't really much of a big deal anymore. I'm a pretty reflective guy. been in counseling for about nine years. I pretty much uncovered a lot of my junk with my counselor. I thought I was good. I didn't think I had too many wounds. I picked this one wound when I was in fourth grade. When I was in fourth grade, I was living in Palisades Park. It was in the evening. My sister Ellen was helping me with my math homework. I couldn't get the math. It was too hard for me. She was getting frustrated because I couldn't get it. And she started yelling at me, started making fun of me. She started calling me stupid. 
Now, I'm not going to just sit there and take that. And so I started yelling back at her, you know, and I started saying some bad things about her. And we started really fighting. And, and we got into it. And my father was watching TV in the living room with my mom and my sister, Susan. And they were watching TV. But because I was yelling with my sister and fighting with her, he couldn't watch TV. So he basically said, Peter, shut up. And I turned to him and I said, F you. And as soon as I said the word you, I knew he was going to kill me. I was just so angry. I wasn't really that angry. I just, I was so angry at my sister and I was in the heat of that fight that I just said, F you. And he came over to me and he had those eyes and those eyes are the look of death. And I knew at that moment he was just going to beat me. It was the worst beating I ever got in my life. He took me, grabbed me by the hair, threw me from one end of the room to the other, started kicking me, started smacking my face. And while he was beating me, I looked to my mom because my savior was my mom. She always came and stopped him and tried to hold him back. She would take the beating from me and everything. And I was hoping that she would do that because it was worse than I've ever gotten before. And as I looked at her, she was watching TV. And I couldn't believe she was watching. She was completely ignoring it. And this is how a fourth grade little boy internalized it. I guess I deserve this. I deserve it because if you say F you to your father, you deserve to get beat. She didn't look at me once. She just watched TV the whole time. And I just thought at that moment, I thought I deserved it. I really deserved this beating. And that's how I internalized it. That's how I got through that beating. And he said, Jesus is in that room. Find him. And I saw Jesus kneeling over me when my father was beating me. And he said these very words to me. Peter, you didn't deserve this. You didn't deserve this. Over and over, he kept saying, Peter, you didn't deserve this. You didn't deserve this. And there was this moment in my own life where I started to sense God in my heart. And I said, really? I didn't deserve that? How come my mom didn't save me then? And I remember just looking at my mom and I just said to her and I said, you know, mom, I didn't deserve this. You should have saved me that night. I didn't deserve it. I looked over to my sister and I said, Ellen, I didn't deserve you calling me stupid. I just didn't know some math. I didn't deserve this night, Dad, you didn't, I didn't deserve you beat me like this. What the Holy Spirit showed me later on, I completely forgot this out of my memory. I think it was too painful. My mother slept with me every night. She was my roommate. She didn't get along with my dad. She always slept with me. That night, I slept by myself. She didn't even check in on me to see how I was doing. I was all by myself. This fourth grade little boy trying to sleep. The only person who came into that room was Jesus. Her name was Susan Ahn. My sister, who was two years older than me, was the marginalized of my family. She has a pronounced learning disability. And she opened the door, and, and I could tell she was crying. She said, Peter, are you okay? So you do experience the real God through the marginalized. And I said, I'm okay. And she left. And that night, I slept by myself. My mom not checking in on me. And I said to my mom, I didn't deserve that night to be alone. I deserved you at least to check in on me and to see if I was okay. It was so powerful what God revealed to me because what it revealed to me later on is because as I became a parent, I really struggled with this part of my life. 
of being a parent. The thing that I, and I, I brought this to my therapist, like there was a part of me, whenever I told my kids like to do something, and you know parents, when they don't listen, and it happens, something bad happens to them, like, you know, sometimes a lot of you who are healthy, you can still be compassionate. Like if I told my son Christian when he was like six years old, Christian, take off your socks. It's a wooden floor. It's very slippery. You're going to fall and hurt yourself. Take off your socks. And typically a six-year-old boy would say, I'm not going to take off my socks. Suit yourself. And if he fell and hit his head on the floor and really hurt himself, most parents would say, are you okay, buddy? You know what I would say? You deserve that. You deserve it. And that would happen successively over the course of several years. And I didn't know why I kept saying they deserved it. I didn't know why. Like, it was this anger within me saying, you deserve that. You deserve that. You deserve that. And I realized the reason why is because God had never healed that wound in my life. Because I felt I deserved the beating that my dad gave me. And because I felt I deserved it, I looked at my kids, and whenever I told them to do something, and they didn't listen to me, and they ended up getting hurt as a result of it, I couldn't look at them with a sense of compassion. Rather, I just said to them, you deserve all that. Get up and suck it up. And remember last year, I shared with you my mask. I shared with you some things about the deep, dark parts of my soul, and I wasn't able to put my finger on this one thing. I said to you, I said, I don't know why, but I have no desire to get close to my sister, Ellen. I don't have it. I don't know why. I just, I just wrote it down in my mask. I have no desire to, get to, know, to want to get closer to her. And God revealed to me the reason why is because I never really forgave her for that moment. About an hour, 30 minutes of crying, of suffering, of weeping. And God healed me. Show me a side of me Show me a side of my life that I never thought needed redeeming. Metro, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are wounds in your life that you never believed needed healing. But today, you need to open them up and you need to let God in so that he can breathe life into those things and heal the wounds in your life. Don't live with secrets anymore. Find them through the marginalized. Be open to suffering. Open up a wound maybe that you're so afraid to open up. Have the courage. Get together with a pastor. Get together with someone so that maybe you don't have to do this by yourself and let God tell you that you didn't deserve it and show you who you truly are. Would the real God truly stand up in your life? I hope and I pray that he will as you crucify the God you created in your own image. Let's pray.